Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on July 20th, 2011. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... And I sensed that she probably wanted me to say neurosurgery or radiology, but I'm from Minnesota. I told her the truth. I said, I'm interested in diarrhea and never saw her again. <laughs> That's Peter Agri. He won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2003. A few weeks back, I was in Lindau, Germany, for the 61st annual Lindau Nobel Laureate Meeting, which this year featured laureates in physiology or medicine and in chemistry. Twenty-three Nobel winners lectured and schmoozed with more than 550 graduate students or postdoctoral fellows at the beginning of their scientific careers. And I had a chance to catch up with a few of the laureates between events, interviews that I'll be rolling out over the next couple of weeks. First up, Peter Agre. He currently heads up the Malaria Research Institute at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, and he won the Nobel for his discovery of the systems that move water into and out of cells. We spoke outside the Inselhalle, the site of the Lindau meeting, which means you can also attempt to identify European birds by their calls. I would like to offer hope to many of our listeners who are students. Uh, you got a D in high school chemistry. Thank you for reminding me. I, I could have done better. I'm sure I could have earned a C. It was a, sort of a matter of acting out. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't think you have to be perfect to do something worthwhile in this world. I think that is a message. But I think if you get a D in chemistry, uh, it's a wake-up call that you should not ignore. It should not ignore it. You should actually buckle down. Is that what you're saying? I did. I, 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 I paid my, my penance. Now, th this was after Linus Pauling, the legendary Linus Pauling, was, was, had been a family friend. Sure. Well, you know, there's, there's a train of succession in life. In the middle comes, of the younger days, comes something called adolescence, the wonder years. And uh, somehow my childhood in idyllic Northfield, Minnesota, and uh, Dad's sabbatical year, we were at Berkeley, California. All of that was great. But as an adolescent, I became somewhat of a rake hell. No, no, no permanent damage. But I got very interested in other things. Not for lack of trying the permanent damage. I mean, you found yourself in Cambodia in well, 1969. That, that was later. That was later. Um, yeah. So actually, as a um, young person, I had a really interesting opportunity. I went to public schools. And my high school German teacher, who was all of 24 years old at the time, brought a group of his university friends for a camping trip in Russia. And then one person canceled, so they had an extra slot. So as a 17-year-old tag-along, I had an international experience. And that kind of flavored where I went in terms of my academic trajectory. So as a high school student, I was a lot more interested in world events, politics. I never entered a single science fair. Mm -hmm. I was very interested in athletics, cross-country skiing, girls, you know, normal life stuff. And so, uh. But I took you off the Linus Pauling track. You were well, going to talk Linus about Pauling. his relationship with your family when you were young. Well, it, it wasn't like we were the best of friends. On the other hand, the importance of role models can't be, uh, underestimated. Da Dad was a chemistry professor at St. Olaf College in Minnesota, then Augsburg College in Minnesota. He was a very active member of the American Chemical Society Education Committee, where he sat on the committee with Linus Pauling, who had authored, uh, very phenomenally important textbook of chemistry. The nature of the chemical bond. That's it. Well, Pauling and Dad became friends, and on one occasion, uh, Dad invited Pauling to come to Minnesota. 
to give a lecture. This is just after he'd received the Peace Prize. So here's a man with two unshared Nobel Prizes. And he stayed at our house for several days. And uh, having breakfast, you know, eating cornflakes in the morning with Linus Pauling was pretty interesting. But he had a sense of humor. My youngest brother, Mark, was in kindergarten at that time. And I remember Dad and Pauling sitting in the living room when Mark came home from kindergarten. And Pauling said, young man, what did you learn in school today? And Mark shook his head, uh, nothing. <laughs> Pauling thought that was pretty funny, that children go to school and learn nothing. Well, Mark's a medical doctor now. He did learn some things along the way. But, yeah, I'll never forget Pauling. And I guess I talk about him more than maybe necessary. On the other hand, he, he set a trajectory that we should take seriously. He was a scientist, phenomenally good scientist. But he didn't stop his exercises at the laboratory door. He brought science to the public. And his second Nobel, of course, in peace, was for launching the worldwide effort to forbid the testing of nuclear weapons in the atmosphere, the Limited Test Ban Treaty, which John Kennedy signed just weeks before his death, really emerged because of the meetings with Linus Pauling. So uh, he contributed in many ways. I, I want to talk about your science uh, just a little bit um, because it's it's very basic and yet it has really critical uh biomedical ramifications and and many of our listeners might not be familiar with it so your work was on water channels in the cell membrane and so let's talk briefly about how you got interested in that and what that means for for people in their daily lives well all life forms are dependent upon water Albert San Giorgi is remembered for having said, water is the solvent of life. Well, so uh, the whole notion of water in, in biology is something that um, concerned a, a group of physiologists and biophysicists because for theoretical reasons, it's Im it was impossible to explain how rapid transport of water across some tissues occurred, but not others. And even the, the rapid transport seemed to be regulated. Foreign body in our eye, we rapidly tear. We take in fluid in excess or drink alcohol, we release dilute urine. If we're fluid deprived or become dehydrated, we concentrate our urine. How does all this fit together? How can we explain the movement of water across tissues? And of course, the barrier is the cell membrane. So for more than a century, physiologists had argued about the nature of the water transport mechanism. But sometimes in science, there are technical obstacles which are not easily overcome. And since water is ubiquitous, we can't chemically modify water. How can you identify the carrier for water? So we, we identified the carrier for water really by sheer serendipity. And by the carrier for water, what do you the, mean? The, the, the transport mechanism, the proteinaceous channel that allows water to cross membranes. And a number of experiments supported this. I think a very important experiment reported in 1970 by Robert Macy at UC Berkeley showed that red cells, which are osmotically very active, shrink in hypertonic solutions, swell in, in hypotonic solutions in milliseconds. He could inhibit this with mercuric chloride. He could block water transport, and by using reducing agents, he could restore it. He could turn it off and on. And the first really convincing evidence that there must be a membrane protein with a free self-hydrol that carried water. Mm -hmm. 
So we were working on the rhesus blood group antigen. I'm a blood specialist, or I was in my earlier days. I'm sort of a clinical dropout these days. And surprisingly, as, as much information is out there about the RH blood group antigen, the molecular basis was not known. My mother went, went no further than high school. She got married. She knew, she learned from the, the doctors she was RHD positive because it's so important, RH incompatibilities. But what causes R? Is it a protein? Is it a lipid? Is it a carbohydrate? We were working on that. We actually made the first isolations of the RH complex, the RH antigen complex. And in the process had a contaminant, which initially distressed us, so we decided the contaminant is co-purification molecule, which is of a similar size to RH, was kind of interesting. And by sorting things out and talking to colleagues, very important, talking to colleagues, because it was a discussion with another colleague, John Parker, at the University of North Carolina, that first turned on the lights that this new protein might be the long-sought water channel. So here we were working away, had a potential diamond in the rough in our hands and not recognizing it, but the wisdom of others helped. So we went after this, and now, of course, that protein is known as aquaporin-1, the first defined water channel, a large family of hundreds of different water channels in different organisms. These green plants around us here have aquaporins in their rootlets. So it, it explains how water moves rapidly through cell membranes. But in that research, you found that... Um because you're you're very uh, interdisciplinary, you, you you talk to other it's people. It's called attention deficit. <laughs> but you found that um, you you still had to protect your priority of the research. So yeah. I think that's interesting for anybody who's actually doing research. How do you collaborate with people informally by sharing your ideas and your results, and still make sure that? You get the credit when you've when you've done the research. Yeah, especially today when the people are just yapping back and forth on the internet. Well, the, you raise an important issue. How can you both share information yet not give it away? And um, we were aware of that. In fact, there were groups who had determined they would discover the water channel. Mm-hmm. We were warned that they would move aggressively onto this, and they did. But that's fine. We. We got our first studies out rapidly. There was no question. There's never been any hint that this was not correct. And by maintaining the high road, and we were encouraged by others to do that, I think we benefited. We were able to, as a small group, attract the interest of others, and we could collaborate actively. And it basically was a way of finding science as a mechanism of building friendships Mm -hmm. with labs in the U.S. and abroad. And their young people would come to our, our lab. Our young people would go to their labs. So, in fact, I think it's an example of uh, the goodness of the community can trump the, the sharks, and, your and network, often do. Your network was so large that everybody knew that you had done it first. Well, I guess I guess it turned out that way. Um, it could have turned out differently, but, but it didn't. So uh, my advice to young scientists is think critically about your work. Probably don't blab none unnecessarily, but the advice of others is oftentimes precious. Mm-hmm. And it really was this conversation with John Parker. John, sadly, didn't live to see the Nobel. He never sought to be part of the studies. It was a mentor suggesting something to a young person who had trained with him in the clinic. He, John developed a malignancy a couple of years later and died. He was only in but, his 50s. That's right. That's right. But his, his memory lives on. 
And he did live to see the early recognition of this water channel story. So I think there are multiple levels of, of effort there. And being friends with other scientists is very important. So the, uh, the understanding of the water transport mechanism within cells, I don't know if I should call it within, on, on the surface on the of surface, cells. Yeah. Um, what does that do for the general practitioner out right. there? What kind of products does a general practitioner have at his or her disposal now because of that knowledge or in the future? Well, that, that's a critical question. And to, to date, I can't tell you that there's been a change in medical therapeutics because of our discovery. It explains what was going on. For example... I mean, anybody taking diuretics for right. blood pressure. Well, how does the water get through the membranes? It's through the aquaporins. Can we inhibit the water transport as another line of, uh, of diuresis? Patients with refractory congestive heart failure. Um, there's efforts now to, to block the reabsorption of water through aquaporin biology, but, but we're still not there yet. One example, though, where existing practice was not explained is the lung disease of the premature infant. Mm -hmm. Part of this is a deficiency in surfactant right. release. A large part is, is the fluid overload. They, they can't clear fluid from the lungs. Right. And work of Landon King, who's the director of the, of the pulmonary and critical care medicine program at Johns Hopkins now. When Landon was a, a, a fellow in our laboratory, he discovered that, in fact, glucocorticoids, corticosteroids, induce regulation, expression of the aquaporins in the microvasculature of the lung. In fact, this is one of the explanations for why uh, a, a pregnant woman who goes into premature labor and they can't reverse it. They will empirically treat with high doses of steroids because they know the lung outcome of the infant is better. In uh -huh. part, it's because of the expression of the aquaporins. Can we use information like that to design new therapies? And, and my answer is I, I, I believe we can, but it's going to take a lot of hard work by a lot of young people like the young scientists here in Lindau to, to look for opportunities where their wisdom and their hard work can lead to practical advances. As my mother is famous of saying, uh, <laughs> It's important to do something useful. Winning Nobel Prizes is not enough. Yeah, that reminds me. What what was your mother's reaction upon you winning the Nobel Prize? Well, the, yeah, so the call came early in the morning. My wife, Mary, called mother. Da Dad had died eight years earlier. Mother's a farm girl. Never had formal education beyond 12th grade in rural Minnesota. And she thought for a moment, said, Mary, tell Peter that's very nice, but don't let this go to his head. And that don't let this go to his head was not meant sarcastically, but sort of a reminder that we really must do something useful. That's that's a lot more important than prizes. Although the prize was nice. Sure it was. Now that sounds like a story Garrison Keeler would tell about his Interesting Scandinavian. You see, see, Garrison Keeler and I are from the same right. the same part of the country. When I was in high school, evening news, K U O M, the University of Minnesota station, read by Garrison Keeler. But there were no jokes then, you know. He just read the news, snowmobile <laughs> accident in Burnsville, that kind of thing. I've met him. Uh -huh. he, um, he talks about life back there, and these are mythical stories he's telling, but they're based on our experience. Yeah. Have, you, have you ever talked about the chemistry of Ludifisk? Chemistry of Ludifisk. <laughs> yes, in fact, I use that as an example, talking about biodiesel generation back in Minnesota. 
<laughs> try to think of terms they could understand. You know, this whole idea of saponification, you know, right. that's ludicrous technology. They have new methods, and there's actually a, a firm out in Minnesota that's that's working on this using a zirconium-based catalysis for breaking up membrane lipid into biodiesel. Right. Yeah, ludifisk. You better brush your teeth after you eat the ludifisk. Floss and brush. Yeah. The, but you're the, basically the, turning it into soap and then well, eating it. Well, you see, you see, the, the Norwegians are simple people, but they discovered a thousand years ago that they could preserve codfish for long ocean voyages if they dried it and soaked it and so and dried it if they soak it in lye right that's what is lye in norwegian so it's the lye fish and of course here's garrison keeler he announced in his radio show that new technology in minnesota has led to a big development in the preparation of ludifisk it's actually laborious but two cycles in the automatic dishwasher comes out pretty good <laughs> That's great. So let's talk politics. You um, you seriously considered a Senate run, United States Senate run. Well, I was serious. I'm not sure everybody else was serious. <laughs> this was the Minnesota Senate oh, seat that's occupied right. by Norman Coleman, right, who right. was originally a very effective Democratic mayor of St. Paul, became a Republican when uh, he was convinced to change parties, and was very ineffective in the Senate, yeah. targeted as the most vulnerable incumbent Republican Basically, far to the right. Right. In my home state... Beaten by a comedian, eventually. Eventually. In fact, my home state of Minnesota had a a Republican incumbent with no credible Democratic opposition. Al Franken didn't announce he would go to the state, although he was a New Yorker. He he lived in Minnesota for a short time. As was Coleman. Coleman was from Brooklyn. You're right. I think that's a little odd, a couple of New York City guys running for the Senate from Minnesota. What are the chances of two Minnesota guys running for the Senate from New York? Um, I, I, I was very concerned about this. I was not looking for a job. I was the vice chancellor at Duke University. I had a nice job. I was being offered and recruited to, to head the Malaria Research Institute at Johns Hopkins. But I felt an obligation to explore. And I was talking to very good people, uh, Vice President Mondale, uh, General Wesley Clark, and others, encouraged me to look into this. But they were very cautious. You should run, but don't step in unless you know you can win. Because as a employee of a tax-exempt institution, a university, you have to distance yourself. You can't get health care insurance salary from federal grants and run for office. Mm-hmm. So we're at a huge disadvantage. That first step of announcing means you must take a leave of absence. And we're not wealthy people. I mean, we, we don't have millions socked away. So I looked, um, how does a scientist apo- uh, approach a new idea? They do pilot experiments. Politicians do polls. So I scraped together uh, from our life savings enough money. To, uh, and I had some very good people. Joe Trippi, mm-hmm. who was uh, Howard Dean's uh, uh, media advisor, helping me. And we looked in, and there was large interest in Minnesota. Uh, we did a poll. And the poll was interesting. Conclusively showed that on the day of the poll, I or any other credible Democrat could have easily beaten Norman Coleman. Clearly beaten him. Except for Al Franken. He, he was not liked. Looked like he couldn't win. The second poll was of, no, so the first poll was of all voters, a cross section, 40% Democrats, 30% independents, 30% Republicans. The second poll was likely voters in the primary, Republicans excluded. So it's de- Democrats, basically. And that poll showed I'd have real trouble getting through the 
caucus in the primary process without a lot of money. And the party was interested in seeing money before getting serious. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I said, if it's not important to them, I won't do it. And what is it Che Guevara said? Never engage in a battle you cannot win. Well, he did, and he lost. Right. So I, I thought at that point, I, I'm taking the malaria job. It was great at Duke. But Minnesota will have to go on their own. And Franken went through the process. He worked incredibly hard, raised $25 million, which was matched by $25 million from Norman Coleman. Of course, 90% or 85% of this was raised out of state. Right. So it was New York and California right. it's funding. It's a proxy and, war. And it was all negative campaigning. My friends and family out of Minnesota were disgusted with the slime that those two candidates threw at each other. But in the end, Obama carried Minnesota by 360,000 votes. Mm-hmm. And it was enough to take on the recall, bring Franken across the finish line, and give the man credit. Franken was the 60th vote on the health care right. bill. So I have, I think, great fundamental differences of, uh, of mindset with Senator Franken. But he did a good thing, and he's trying to gain credibility. I mean, he's, he, he's a good person. I mean, it's pretty clear to me that his, his motivation is sincere. He does not want to go to his grave as another New York City comedian. He wants to do something... Mm-hmm useful and we should respect that let's talk about what your motivations were for even considering this why as a scientist did you feel i'm sure that there there were scientific uh not scientific reasons you know you could analyze but you know what was going on in the attitudes in the country about science that was what were part of your thinking well my take was the people in minnesota are these are good people. They're in many ways um, more generous than other parts of the country. They're, they're better educated than other parts of the country. Uh, Al Franken's position was to run, I hate George Bush, and we're going to end the war. Right. Uh, it didn't seem to me that was credible. What bothered me was the lack of commitment to education, to the environmental issues, and health care reform. So I was going to run on the trifecta, education, climate change, and health care reform. I, I didn't foresee, nor did anyone, the, the importance of the, the economic decline, which was, in the, in the end, probably the most important issue. But I think that's what the voters were considered important, and um, someone has to represent this. To my knowledge, there's never been a scientist in the U.S. Senate. And at that time, yeah, in the House, Senate. there are a few, sure. Uh, Rush Holt. Oh, Rush is yeah. tremendous, although he's, he's very careful to use his science as a way of approaching policy. Right. He's not there preaching science. But there are very few in the House, none in the Senate, and the, the three physicians in the Senate were far to the right. right. Now, Senator Frist, who's left the Senate, has moderated his tone. Yeah. And I, I served on committees with Senator Frist after office and respect the man. But Senator Coburn, Senator Barrasso are quite far to the right, and now joined by Rand Paul. Right. Why doesn't the Democratic Party think that actually having a physician, a scientist, might be useful? I mean, when it comes down to a health care debate, we have Senator Coleman on one side and Al Franken on the other. Right. I mean, I wouldn't consider this a fair fight. I thought as a physician scientist, I might have something to offer, and others will. So it wasn't a personal need for publicity or uh, the office itself. I felt it was more of a civic duty. And uh, so I looked and decided it was, it was not going to happen and went on to my other options, which I must say I've been really... Glad sure. it worked out as it did. There's there seems to be a, a real anti-science aspect to a lot of our politics now, though. Well, there 
there is an anti-science by the far right. Uh, we have to be careful that the far left doesn't balance this with a, a naive approach of promising what we can't deliver. Sure. I mean, science is is neutral. It's not politically conservative or liberal. It's these are the facts. This is how nature works. But that very statement has become political. Yes. Although I I, I I'm firmly uh, impressed by President Obama and his approach. He's not a scientist. Right. It became clear during the ca- the campaign when I asked you know, as part of his advocacy advocacy group. I asked his his handlers you know, just what is his background negligible. But he's surrounded himself by very knowledgeable, articulate scientists. Stephen Chu. Secretary of Energy. That's right, Secretary of Energy, Nobel Laureate. uh, John Holdren, Presidential Science Advisor. Harold Varmus. Eric Lander of the the President's Committee on Science and Technology. So I, I think we've got intelligence science represented in the White House. The agenda has, has been largely on other issues. But I think uh, it's, it's something that we have to be careful that we don't present science as left-wing or right-wing. And I personally feel scientists are not very convincing when they get off on this. We've got to teach evolution to conservatives that believe that evolution is anti-biblical because they're both wrong. Mm-hmm. I think there's, there's nothing about evolution in the Bible. I mean, I think this is a statement of religious insecurity but people have their beliefs as long as they understand that there is uh, pressure environmental pressure on organisms to adapt antibiotic resistance by bacteria represent a form of evolution but let's 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 not call it evolution because that buzzword turns people off Mm -hmm. i think the important issue is to understand the the importance of the concept Natural selection is not an inflammatory phrase. Evolution is. So while, I, of course, I believe in evolution, virtually every scientist does, I try to be convincing. And, and my mother, who, who I talked about earlier, after Dad died, has been going to a very conservative church in Minnesota for multiple reasons. In part, they're, they're, they're not, they don't view themselves as the academic elite these are working folks, many of them with scars, and I have uh, two siblings who were, who were born with significant handicaps. Paul is mentally retarded. That's the medical diagnosis. This is not a pejorative term. He, he, he has an IQ of below 70. He reads at the first grade level. And uh, they welcome him into the men's group in the church. Mm-hmm. Ruth is emotionally disabled, morbidly obese. Again, these are not people who fit in well in a lot of organizations. But that church has been very inclusive of them. So mother goes to this, and I use her to kind of get a sense of what what is what are people thinking, and and some of what I think they 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 preach is 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 very sensible, and some which I don't agree with at all. But not knowing what's out there is um, sometimes dangerous. I think we, you know the United States is a big country with many different groups, many different opinions. And I think the the middle ground oftentimes can be effective in looking for problems that we can solve, approaches that we can solve, would have been my choice in the Senate. Uh, I didn't expect they would have 60 votes in the Democratic side for health care, and I worry that there was not a single Republican on the other side. Um, my job would have been to convince them to come over. 
And by targeting the moderates, we were kind of losing the middle ground. So all of that has something to do with advocating for science, but in a more general sense. Mm -hmm. you know, far from the lab origins that, that I had, and I loved, and I still have a lab. But, you know, life is short. I think if there are adventures out there and we have an interest, we should, we should at least consider pursuing those adventures. Well, let's, let's talk very briefly about a subject that's related to politics, and, and that's the importance of diarrhea in your, in your scientific awakening. The importance of diarrhea. Well, when I entered Johns Hopkins as a medical student in 1970, I'd, I'd spent many months previous to that traveling in East Asia, South Asia, because I had an interest in world health, global health. This is long before it was kind of trendy. It had to do with our origins in the Norwegian community in Minnesota, the, the Lutheran medical missionaries. They were not preaching evangelism. They were, they were providing health care in rural Africa and Asia. And so I joined a wonderful group at Johns Hopkins to work on, on diarrheal diseases, in part because, I, like anybody who traveled in the outbacks of Asia, it was plagued with diarrhea those months. And there was a breakthrough that occurred at the University of Texas. Richard Finkelstein had isolated the toxin from Vibrio cholera, causing cholera. So I, I found this really interesting. I worked with Bradley Sack at Johns Hopkins and teamed up with Pedro Cuadracasas at Johns Hopkins, who welcomed me into their labs. I mean, I was just an upstart medical student. We isolated the toxin. Um, it was a very interesting time, and it convinced me that biomedical research was my path to world health. Mm -hmm. You're familiar with the works of uh, Paul Ewald. Uh, I know this name. You have to... Well, he, he, he's sort of a pioneer in evolutionary medicine. Okay. And uh, diarrhea was also his, sure. his uh, instigating factor. Well, yeah, I, I, I don't think I was inspired by diarrhea. <laughs> I, I, I do remember one amusing event wherein I was at a mixer at a woman's college outside of Baltimore and um, talking to a very attractive young lady who asked me that fatal question, Peter, which, which medical specialty are you interested in? And I sensed that she probably wanted me to say neurosurgery or radiology, but I'm from Minnesota. I told her the truth. I said, I'm interested in diarrhea and never saw her again. <laughs> but my wife, Mary, who I met subsequently, who worked in a lab at Hopkins, a farm girl from Maryland, studied biology in college. Uh, we, we fell in love, and she, she was not squeamish about these things. So <laughs> she did point out that if I was going to work on diarrhea, it would be nice if I didn't bring my work home at night. <laughs> I agree. Tell us about your, your current project, the malaria work. Well, you know, it's something I wanted to get involved in for a long time. But in science, when uh, things work, you tend to follow the next step. And it was in the mid-1980s working on red cell membranes, and I trained as a hematologist. Malaria was next on the agenda. But we discovered the water channel. It was too interesting to look up. And 15 years in the lab, and now thousands and thousands of papers are in the textbooks. But I still had this um, sort of sense of unfulfilled interest. Mm -hmm. And we had received a grant from the Malaria Institute at Johns Hopkins. The institute was started in 2001 by a generous gift, then anonymous, but it's not anonymous. It's from Michael Bloomberg, the mayor of New York, mm -hmm. who, in a meeting with Diane Griffin, and Al Summer from the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health decided he would fund a research institute studying malaria. 
and Diane, who's a virologist, led it initially. And we'd gotten a grant from this the agency to do some malaria studies. And after some success, we wrote an R01 grant. So we were funded to work on malaria. And when they offered me the directorship of this, that's when I decided to leave the vice chancellorship at Duke to return to Johns Hopkins, which is really my academic home. I've been at Hopkins pretty much constantly for 40 years. And uh, the center has a basic scientific component, an epidemiological component, as well as a clinical component. And we're very fortunate to have received a, an ICEMR, I-C-E-M-R, International Center of Excellence for Malaria Research for Zimbabwe and Zambia. There are 10 ICEMRs worldwide, and we're fortunate to have one. So I spend now a third of my year in Zim and Zam, as we say, working with Zimbabwean and Zambian scientists. Sandra Chisemba, who was here at the Lindau, was on the, I, I, I'm very thrilled and feel very wonderful. She was my nominee to come to this conference. And, and I think she represents the, what third world scientists can accomplish. Origins are modest, but heavens, you go back a generation or two, our origins were modest. Sure. And um, as much as I liked some of my previous jobs, I can't say that in the vice chancellor's position at Duke, I came to work very often and people patted me on the back. It was more like being chairman of the complaints department at Macy's. <laughs> but as a malaria institute, it's different. Yeah. There are a lot of people who show up on my doorstep looking for money, right. but it's always a malaria issue. And my object here is um, unabashedly to put malaria and third world disease research in front of these wonderful young scientists, 580 of the best graduate students in the world. I think some of them will come along and decide that this is, a, this is something they'd like to get involved in. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's at this stage of my life is what I do best. So it's like planting seeds that should take root. And, we hope. You know. We hope. Some, someone is going to do the science. Um, if we make it, I think, inherently interesting and show that it's actually feasible. Again, you don't have to be perfect to do something really useful in life. And there have been four Nobel Prizes awarded for malaria, and there'll be more. I don't think they'll be the people my generation. It'll be these young people. More Nobel Prize winners from Lindau coming soon. In the meantime, get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can check out our section on citizen science. It has info on research projects that you can take part in, from ornithology to entomology to astronomy. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet each time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.